We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Big Blue Banter Podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Filato. Today, we get the pleasure of breaking down the Giants' 24-3 victory over the Washington Redskins in Week 3, a game that was much closer in score than reality. The Giants dominated, and as my brother, who was at the game, said best, it was the first game in years where fans at the stadium never felt like at any point in this game they would lose. I watched this game from the aerial angle in the press box for this game, again on the broadcast angle, and then on the All-22 last night. At the stadium, the new feeling of hope, it was palpable and obvious from the moment they announced Daniel Jones as the starter. Of course, two egregious overthrows by Case Keenum helped make that possible. He connects on either pass, both with Grant Haley in coverage. It's a different game, and we'll talk about Haley a little bit. Those passes did not connect, though, and the Giants' defense allowed Pat Shermer and company to take their foot off the gas pedal, save for a 50-yard completion to Cody Latimer that was called back by penalty on a phantom offensive pass interference. But the Giants ran out the clock. They took the air out of the ball. They do what, did what consistent winners done and something fans haven't seen in a long time. Um, and fans were simply not used to it. But even in matchups against teams like the Redskins over the past two years, when the Giants have won on Sundays, it just has never come to fruition like this. So on that note, we're going to dive deep into the analysis that you guys came for, the All-22 review. So, Nick, let's start things off with the coaches. On the offensive side of the ball, what did you make of Pat Schirmer's game plan and his play-calling mix and the improvement we've seen from the Giants on third downs over this game and the past two weeks in general? Yeah, Dan, I mean, 
I liked what Shermer did. He had a lot of different ways to get our guys open in space. There was a lot of vertical clear outs to set up underneath drags for Evan Ingram, Sterling Shepard, just playmakers, get him in space. A lot of horizontal crossers. We saw mesh concepts with snag routes over top. We saw a lot of high-low reads, bunch formations with deep route, horizontal route, and then a quick hitch underneath at the sticks. A lot of these on third downs that created easy completions for Daniel Jones. We also saw a lot of pivot routes. Now, we saw that for Evan Ingram. I think we saw it a couple times for Sterling Shepard in man coverage to get these guys open. I also like the spacing that Pat Shermer utilized. I like how he kind of used every inch of the field. We saw on a few different occasions he would come out in four, five wide receiver sets with the outside receivers and plus splits off the numbers by about two or three yards to really stretch the defense. And then he would do these underneath routes or those little check downs to Gallman to get easy yardage against a defense that was vulnerable. So I really liked what I saw from Pat Shermer when it comes to how he was kind of scheming to assist Daniel Jones and to get our guys open. Yeah, I mean, Nick, I think you hit it spot on. This was a different game plan than last week against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It was a different play-calling mix, um, but it really focused on the strengths of Daniel Jones in the short passing game, 1 to 10 yards. I believe he threw one or two incompletions the entire game. Found a lot of good openings on those third downs, like you said. And in general, against what the defense was showing, the way that the Redskins played the Giants, which was a little different than the Buccaneers played them, it was less aggressive. The Redskins, I noted, at least two times where they sent six blitzers, a couple more where they sent five, but it really wasn't the same game plan that we saw against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I also thought that they did a good job of actually, and I know this is going to sound weird coming from me, the king of you should never run on first down. You should always throw short passes instead on first down uh, in a variety of ways, but I thought they did a good job of running the football, blocking for the run with different versions on different personnel packages, I noted a few with 12 personnel. Uh, they put Dickerson on the field. Sometimes they had Ellison and Ingram. They even found some success running from 11 with just Ingram on the field as the lone tight end. And even some success with Ellison as the lone tight end in 11 personnel as well. I thought the run did a really good job to open up the pass. And really, for me, the interior offensive line stood out to me from a run blocking standpoint. I have in my notes a few times where they opened up. Big holes up the middle for Gallman uh, to really keep the chain moving and get Jones in the spots where he had third and twos, where he had third and sixes, where he had third and fives, manageable downs, multiple third and twos. I'm looking throughout my notes, manageable down and distances to scheme up, like you said, those underneath throws open for the first down. And again, like I said in the intro, Nick, 50-yard pass negated. You can add those to the stats because I will add that 50 yards. Uh, from Jones to Latimer to the statue. I'm adding it right now, Nick. I don't give a shit because, listen, that was the worst call I've seen in this game and the worst call I've seen this season. The man, Cody Latimer, beats press coverage, gets called for offensive pass interference. I have no idea why. I guess because the cornerback looks so off balance. But agreed with you. It was a really good game plan for this specific matchup and for what the Redskins' defense was showing under Minuski. And, again, they took the the foot off the, the gas pedal late in this game. The Giants, you know, from drive six on or drive seven on in the third quarter. They were really just taking the air out of the ball. They had one drive where, you know, it was four plays. They started on first and 10 to Gallman. They threw a boot to Ellison for one yard. Uh, 
third and 11, they'd hit that screen. And then again, on second and one and third and one, they ran the ball and punted on fourth and one from about midfield. And you saw it on the next drive finally, you know, where they just kind of had Penny in the game. They were just kind of taking the air out of the ball. One thing I do want to say, Nick, before we move on to James Betcher's play calling mix, because it did spark my interest when we were talking about it from your breakdown. The Giants, to me, I said this in an article. I wrote this in an article uh, when when the Giants made the decision to start Jones. I thought they would use a lot more shotgun because that's what Jones was running almost exclusively at Duke. Uh, I know Chris Sims said that he thought the opposite. He thought they would be under center using a lot of boot action. So far through two games, I've been right on that one. They've used a ton of shotgun, what Jones is more comfortable with. But my question for you is when they have gone under center and there was a multiple instance of it in this game on the play action boot, with the exception of the last drive where Ellison kind of broke that tackle and the game was already over, the play action boot has not been successful for the Giants. Um, obviously, there was one other play where I would call it a success when it was actually the only time it was the play action boot from under center where Jones rolled out to the left, Nick, where he then scanned the field for a second and took a seven-yard gain with his feet on the ground. But why do you think they haven't been as successful hitting these passing plays off the play action boot? It seems like teams, both the Bucks and Redskins, have guessed it pretty well so far. Yeah, I mean, we saw... Pat Shermer tried to do the same thing with Eli Manning, and we kind of made the excuse like Eli's not mobile. He can't do that. So maybe when Daniel Jones comes in, it'll be more success. And we haven't necessarily seen it, especially coming out of single back as well. It wasn't the play action boot, but we did see Daniel Jones out of single back do play action and throw his first interception. Now, we'll get into that a little bit later. We just don't have enough information on at the moment. I would like to see how it materializes as we go on to game three, game four, game five, etc. Yeah, no doubt. And it's possible he's just going to need more time. Like I said, when I originally wrote that article and made that prediction, he was playing almost exclusively out of shotgun at Duke. This is not, you know, it's going to take time for him to get more comfortable under center. You even mentioned it with the interception, which was a play from under center, a play action. We'll get to that soon. But first, Nick, let's also talk about the other side of the ball. And what did you think? Yeah. For, what did you think about James Betcher's game plan defensively and also his play calling mix? One thing before we get into Betcher, and I wanted to bring this up because we specifically talked about it last week on the podcast, was the power concept that the Giants utilized, that Pat Shermer utilized. And we saw it on the touchdown to Gallman. We saw Hernandez come. He had nobody to block, but we saw it several times throughout this game. And I love to see the variance in the rushing attack, something that I'm sure you put a smile on your face. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Nick. We finally saw some power plays. Not only did we see it from Hernandez pulling on the play uh, that that sprung the early touchdown uh, when Gallman ran for like 21 yards to about the two. We also saw later in the game actually something I hadn't seen yet, Zeitler pulling from right to left. And actually, Nick, it's interesting you you bring this up. And we obviously, you know, same same with me and Turchin, it's the same thing with me and Pilato. We don't actually talk too much in depth before the podcast. We kind of want to let it go free-flowing. But after the game, obviously some of you might know this. Uh, I covered this game from the press box for CBS Sports. wanted to get a – Good story out on Daniel Jones' first home start. Thought, thought he did a solid job on that. But one thing I talked about in the locker room after uh, was with John Jalapeo about, you know, was there anything different you're doing schematically these weeks? And why are we seeing more plays from power? Uh, is, it, is it because of the switch with Barkley and, and Gallman? And basically what Jalapeo told me was was that it really has nothing to do with the game plan or with who's in the game now, Barkley or Gallman. He just said he, they had the Giants have had those power plays in the playbook. And they just really didn't find a place for them in the first three weeks at all. They just, within the game script, it just wasn't there for the Giants. But these are part; these plays are part of their playbook. And obviously last year, we saw almost exclusively they ran inside zone. And they're still going to be an inside zone team in the run game. 
But as they start to mix in more plays like this with guys like Zeitler and Hernandez, you can find success. And I'm really happy you brought that up, Nick, because that's just a new element to their offensive offensive attack that I think will help them moving forward. Um, But anyway, on that note, let's dive into James Betcher, his game plan and his play calling. What I love to see, again, we were playing Washington, so let's keep things into perspective here a little bit. But we were getting pressure again with four men, and we were utilizing some end tackle stunts, tackle end stunts, really creative ways to get our pass rushers free. And we saw it time and time again with O'Shane Zimenez, with Dexter Lawrence, and they were able to beat their one guy. Saw a lot. I posted the one on Twitter where O'Shane, he timed it so perfectly with an arm over swim move, hit the offensive guard brought the tackle in with him to allow Dexter Lawrence just to flow and stunt right around and go right after the quarterback. And we saw that several times in this game. We're getting pressure with four people. And on the back end, obviously Jack Rabbit had a much better game. He had the two interceptions and he was the impetus for the interception by Connolly in the opening drive. I saw a lot of man coverage, but I also saw a lot more zone, a lot more dropping back, covering the sticks, things along those lines. It just seemed apparent that the Giants defense wasn't as threatened by Washington as they were by the Buccaneers, which kind of goes without saying when you look at the weapons the Buccaneers have. I want to say they have like two top five wide receivers right now in Godwin and Evans. And even though the Giants kept Godwin in check, we saw what Evans did to this defense. But it was encouraging for sure. Obviously, the depth something that is going to be somewhat concerning right now. I'm wondering if that's going to hinder the play calling of James Betcher, the depth at the linebacker position is what I'm talking about specifically. But I did like what I saw from the stunts, the twists up front to get pressure on the quarterback, force these turnovers, force these incompletions, force the quarterback out of the pocket. Yeah, for sure, Nick. And let's put this into perspective here because obviously the Giants aren't going to get the luxury of playing Case Keenum, this offensive line that was missing Brandon Sheriff and obviously Trent Williams. This group of wide receivers, running backs, Dwayne Haskins, a rookie quarterback who looks nowhere near ready, in my opinion, every week. So we have to keep in mind there was some base, like you said, there was some basic zone cover three stuff that just the Redskins couldn't beat. Not not anything novel, you know, just straight up coverages they couldn't beat. Um, and there were some covered sacks, and there were some really good pressures by this giant defensive line. But at the same time, Nick. Something has to be said that the Giants are top 10 with 26 total quarterback hits through the first four weeks. And so on that note, they're really getting more pressure than they did on a more consistent basis than last year. So we'll see where this goes. Obviously, we can't make too many big, bold proclamations based on a game against this Redskins offense. But it was definitely an improvement that we like to see. So, Nick, before we dive into specifics, players and whatnot, I want to know something. That's that's definitely piqued my interest. The Giants have scored on all four opening drives. As everyone knows, three of them have been touchdowns. One's been a field goal. And on these opening drives, they're often scripted. There's scripted plays by the head coach or by whoever the play caller is for that game. So why, in your mind, do you think the Giants have been so successful on these opening drives? We've seen Pat Shermer have success with these opening drives, with that opening script. But this one came a little bit differently because there was a sudden change. The Redskins turned the ball over in their territory with the play by Jack Rabbit, who utilized excellent eye discipline and timing to get his hand in there, knock the ball into the air. So Connolly get that interception. Giants get the ball. First play, we saw shotgun, 13 personnel. The Giants came out with two wide receivers to the field, and they both ran vertical routes against a single high man coverage look. This is one of the times where they brought, the Redskins that is, five-man pressure. 
And in this play, Jones did a great job maneuvering the pocket to his right and waiting for Ellison to come open on that drag. See, this is – I talked about this concept before, and I love it by Shermer, that clear out wide receiver to open up the underneath routes. But I kind of like it more when it's Evan Ingram rather than Rhett Ellison, which we saw that happen throughout the game. We saw Ingram on those underneath routes. But on this specific play, the first play, both wide receivers to the field seem to beat their man outside. And if you watch the tape, you could see, I wonder if there just wasn't a lot of space because the Giants were on their own 30 or were on Washington's 32 yard line. Rather, if you watch that play, you could see both of those guys beat their men deep. And that was interesting to me, but I'm glad DJ ended up going with this underneath route. Only picked up three yards, but also set up the rest. Next play, second down, we run the ball. Not a big gain whatsoever. Third and seven, Remmers gets the holding. That kind of sucks. Now it's third and 17, and this is the play call I love because we come out in 11 personnel, shotgun against a cover four look. The New York Giants have two wide receivers to the field, and upon the snap, Jones looks at the number one receiver to the field for a second to get the strong safety's eyes looking outside. But this play was a design to Gallman, who was leaking out of the backfield, probably just to get the Giants into some manageable field goal position or something along those lines, since it was a third and 17. And on this play, Cody Latimer, number one receiver, he runs a vertical and occupies that cornerback and that strong safety due to Daniel Jones's eyes. Daniel Jones looks at him, and then Lattimore does an excellent job upon the catch from Gallman, sealing the outside and blocking the cornerback, while the number two wide receiver, Sterling Shepard, does something similar against the nickelback and the linebacker at that hash, that close hash. Shepard fakes the pivot route something that we've talked about on this podcast. We have ran, or the Giants ran a lot of pivot routes throughout this game. He fakes that pivot route and he creates traffic. So the linebacker who's in man coverage against Gallman, even though it was a cover four look, comes flying down, ends up running into the traffic. That is Shepard and Shepard's man blocking the linebacker from getting to Gallman. And this traffic set by Shepard and the block by Latimer allow Gallman to pick up 15 yards. It was one of those things where it's like, all right, we're just going to seal and get a playmaker, the ball in space. Gallman's able to pick up 15 yards and set up that fourth and two. And I love the confidence and the balls of Pat Shermer to just go for it here and not take that field goal by Aldrich Rosas. And on fourth and two, they line up five wide. The skins bring a six man pressure. What happens? Hits Shep for the three yard out route. Easy. And I loved Shep's release off the line of scrimmage. Against Fabian Monroe, he, I believe Moreau, yeah, Moreau lined up in outside leverage. Shepard utilized a quick inside jab step to slightly open up the hips of Moreau. And that gives Sterling Shepard the leverage to create just enough space to just go right towards the sideline at the sticks, pick up three yards, first down New York Giants. I loved that sequence. I love the fact that we went for it. I love the fact that the New York Giants have the confidence to trust a rookie quarterback in that situation. And it's something that happened. And then we saw a lot more play calling that materialized throughout that drive. The next play was an RPO on a three-by-one set with Ingram to the weak side. The number three wide receiver ran the bubble. The number one and two were going to stalk block. But number 55, Cole Holcomb, kind of played it incredibly well, and it forced an incompletion. And then there was a zone read the next play where there was 12 personnel. Benny Fowler, who just got cut, came on the pre-snap motion against a very, very weak five-man front. There were two in-line tight ends. It's kind of like something we were t- you mentioned before. The Giants had the two tight ends. It was actually a really weak front, and it only materialized in a four-yard game, but the Giants had massive numbers. 
I want to say it was Nate Solder who kind of struggled blocking Jonathan Allen. He had to reach him on this play, and he just could not. And that's something about the Redskins, too, that we should mention. Granted, they are a team that isn't exactly there right now. They have Deron Payne. They have Jonathan Allen. They have some really big boys in the trenches, something that I've definitely took a lot of note of. And they were making plays against our offensive line, even though we ended up, I say, I'd say our offensive line ended up getting the check mark and the win in that category as it went on. But that set up a third and six. And the Giants line up with three wide receivers to the field. Evan Ingram on that weak side, the number one and two do double curls and Shep gets the first down by finding the soft spot in his zone coverage on that horizontal crossing route in the red zone. Uh, I want to say the weak side of the formation did a corner flat combo. Daniel didn't even look that way. But something about Sterling Shepard, I know Turchin and you talked about his route running. Another thing that I love is his spatial awareness against zone coverage. And he's done this time and time again since he was a rookie with the New York Giants. I loved what he showed on this play to get this first down, set up another zone read that Jones looked like he probably could have walked into the end zone because Noah Spence and Landon Collins crashed hard down the line of scrimmage, but he ends up handing the ball off. Not that big of a deal. And that set up the play of plays. The first and goal touchdown because there was a penalty offsides on the previous play. And on that play starts with the play action. And Jones goes through five progressions on a full field read, dude, a full field read to get the touchdown. He goes from the flat to the corner, nothing there to the snag over the middle of the field, nothing there. That was covered. He looks at the backside dig until he finds Gallman, who Cole Holcomb lost. And Gallman was just sitting there in the flat with his arms in the air, dumps it off for him, six points. The blocking was great on the play. The patience and the ability to just go through his progressions like nothing was going on was amazing by Daniel Jones. And it was incredibly encouraging. What do you think, Dan? Well, I thought that was definitely the drive of the game. And I love how you broke that down. Some key takeaways I wanted to touch on as we walk back through your drive. Let's start with the first thing that stood out to me. Um, and that was Jones doing a really excellent job on a third and seven. It was the first, it was right before they got the, the holding penalty to go to third and 17 where they kind of dumped it down to Gallman. We'll touch on that. But it's subtle. But on this play, Jones doesn't stick with his first pre-snap read. Uh, and if he had, the safety is le- ready to jump this for an interception. Instead, he comes off that, uh, gives the Giants a chance to continue that drive. And then on that pass to Gallman, one little subtlety that you didn't mention, and you know that doesn't need too much to mention, but I believe it plays a big factor here, is ball placement on this throw to Gallman. It's put in the exact spot that gives him a chance to maximize his yards after the catch. Now, we look back, we fast forward to the touchdown. You broke it down in full. You pointed out what needs to be pointed out, the most important part. He makes a full five-read progression. But also, look at where the ball is thrown. It's thrown to the outside for Gallman. So instead of throwing a ball back to the inside to him wide open, which gives the defender who's chasing him on the play, obviously the Redskins did not account for Gallman because they were following Jones' eyes, and that last backer or, or safety or whoever it was, was a nickel guy for the Redskins, kind of cheated towards the middle because, again, Jones, he would exp- as you would expect, I mean, from Eli and a lot of veteran quarterbacks, honestly, one of that most quarterbacks are going to try to fit that into one of those tight windows they see on one of their first four reads. But again, instead of throwing it back towards the middle or to, towards Goldman, Goldman's inside shoulder, which gives the defender a chance to kind of make a play, he throws it to the outside and, and Goldman can walk it in. So those are things that I noticed. One last thing I want to point out about the drive on that pass play to Shepard, where, like you said, two things about Shepard. 
one of the best, the best route runner on this team. Like you said, awesome breakdown of how he got open on that fourth and two. Also does a great job of finding soft spots and zone. I knew this was going to be a good signing when they resigned him. A lot of Giants fans just went by the stats and didn't like it. Said, why are you paying a guy to do this who has, you know, a lot of 800-yard seasons? I saw what I saw last season on the tape. I knew that, you know, with opportunity to make plays. But one thing I want to point out about this play, Nick, the pass production on that third and seven where Shepard found that soft spot to set up the first and goal was unbelievable. It was the best pass production. They got all game, and it was on a third and long where it's the hardest down to pass protect. So there were times in this game where Soldier got beat right off the snap. It's going to happen with him this season. They're going to have to find an offensive tackle of the future this offseason. It is a number one priority. But at the same time, there were times of great pass protection, and that was one of them. So that stood out to me, Nick. You laid that out perfectly. The ball placement on that Gallman pass and the fact that there was really good pass protection on this opening drive was kind of set Daniel Jones into motion to make these plays able to thrive. And I was just glad to see kind of the team effort of this offense coming together and getting six on another opening drive, something you'd love to see. Sure. So let's talk a little Daniel Jones, Nick. All right. What are your overall impressions before we dive into the specifics of the rookie making his second NFL star in this game? In this game, I would say patience, ability to improvise, and ability to bounce back when he makes mistakes. I mean, he threw two interceptions in consecutive drives, and that's something that is concerning, especially for young quarterbacks. Is that going to shake him? How is his mental toughness? And it didn't rattle him. He was still able to come back, get the win, and make plays down the stretch. I love this kid. I love what he is showing and what he can just kind of make things happen when things are breaking down. We saw that go down in this game. I want to say it was a third down play, third and 13. I think it was a few plays after the Kevin Zeitler hold. The Giants lined up in 11 personnel, had the H back to the weak side along with the wide receiver tight to the numbers and a stack left. And this was one of the ones where it was a vertical slanted route by the wide receiver that was on the line of scrimmage in the stack and the wide receiver off the line of scrimmage ran a seven while the backside wide receiver just ran a drag. And Solder on this play, he kind of got beat up the arc, but he did just enough to get the defensive player outside of the pocket. But the pocket ends up crashing and DJ spins off and miraculously rushes for 16 yards to pick up the third down. It's just things like this that Giants fans have not seen in since way before we were around from the quarterback position. And it's something that's really motivating and something I love to see because he can improvise. He can make things happen off script, even though he's incredibly efficient on script, hits that back foot. His timing is really well. And he's working with receivers that he doesn't even necessarily have a huge rapport with, not only just because he's a rookie, but just because there has been injuries. Golden Tate, how's he going to do with him? He's coming back from suspension. Just caught Benny Fowler and Benny Fowler played what? 49 offensive snaps. So it's one of those things where it's not just relying on your playmakers. He's the playmaker. Yeah, no doubt. But let's talk a little bit about the interceptions, Nick. Obviously, this game, the fumbles weren't a, weren't a problem, but the interceptions were. So for me, on the first interception, it came on a play from under center. We talked about it early. It was play action with deep drop. Jones saw the lone safety, who was in the top of the field, in the middle at a solid depth. So I don't mind this read because his thought here is that the corner who's trailing Cody Latimer, who's lined up as the split end, is going to run with Cody, who's running a deep post. Uh, and then the safeties kind of kind of follow over the top there. So the goal is to hit Shepard, who's coming from the right side, on a deep crosser over to the left side. Of course, the corner who's trailing Latimer dropped off instead of, uh, you know, 
uh, following Latimer on the deep post, and he's actually the one who made the play on the ball, not the safety. He jumped the pass for the interception. Um, what did you see from Jones on this? Is there something that fans should be alarmed about? What are your thoughts? So it was a Yankee concept. We saw this employed last week by Pat Shermer and this New York Giants offense. But on this Yankee concept, what I was wondering, because it was off coverage by the cornerback that was covering Latimer. Latimer was doing that vertical post. And I watched this several times. Latimer doesn't really stem on this vertical inside route until about 13 yards off the line of scrimmage because Dunbar was playing off of him. And I was wondering if he was told to do this, if he was told to just close with and once he chews enough ground, then he cuts or if it was just that late of a break because it was a combination on this play of that stem being late left Dunbar close to the sidelines and Dunbar having the awareness that he does, saw Shepard crossing face, read Daniel Jones's eyes, and was able to jump the route. It was an excellent play by Dunbar, but I'm wondering if that stem happened earlier, say at 9 yards or 10 yards, which sometimes it is that early, would Dunbar have been more towards the middle of the field and Shepard would have been more open towards the sideline? You got to tip your cap to Dunbar. But again, on this play, Daniel Jones had someone in his face. Tim Settle was able to beat the offensive lineman. I want to say it was Will Hernandez with a quick club rip combination because Hernandez opened up a little bit too far outside and Settle was able just to get his edge, attack the half man and get pressure right up into Jones's face. He takes the hit on that play. Dunbar jumps the route because Latimer is still towards that sideline instead of more towards the middle of the field, which again, that could have been a coach thing. I don't want to put it on Cody Latimer. It's just one of those things that I was like, I'm not really 100% sure if he was supposed to stem and cut on that route before the 13-yard right. mark. I was wondering uh, what you thought about that. I think that, honestly, Nick, I think some of the things with Jones, listen, he's not a perfect prospect. There's a reason why neither me or Nick Turchin were really that big on him, and I don't know where you stood on him. I'm just going back by our past podcast, Nick, but why me and Turchin were not too high on him before the draft. Obviously, we were much higher on him, and it's you know evidence in our Jones podcast from right after the pick. Once we had a chance to kind of match his skill set to Pat Shermer's offensive scheme, you know, then you get an idea for what the coach sees and where he could help kind of best utilize what was good and bad. But one of the reasons why I was never too high on Daniel Jones was the arm talent. And I think for me, Nick, in both of these situations with the interception, the arm talent does show up. The ball just takes a little longer to get there. There was also a deep post later in the game where Norman almost made an interception. Uh, again, ball just doesn't get there. It's that's, This is going to happen with Jones. He's going to make big plays when he has the opening and when he sees when he sees the field well, like he did on that Slayton uh, long pass against the Bucks. But there will be times where it's just, there's just not, there's no easy solutions. With, and I kind of feel like that was the case for both of these. Um, obviously, we'll get into it. But on the second interception, I thought Jones missed Ingram breaking across the middle on a kind of quick in. It was kind of out of his line of sight. Uh, I think that's something he'll improve with experience as he sees it on film and then he sees the same thing next time and he knows he has Ingram. But instead, again, he tries to force this deep over to Shepard. This time he's just well covered by the by the defender who's, whose primary coverage was him. And again, I think the ball is just a little bit, just doesn't have exactly what you would get on it from a guy like maybe, you know, a Drew Locke, something like that. And that's okay. That's part of who he is. That's the reason, you know, if he also had that to his game, if he also had the big arm, he probably would have been the first guy picked at quarterback. I mean, maybe not over Murray. Murray's a special player, um, in my opinion. But who, again, who fits that system perfectly as well. And, yeah, even though that system can't really maximize itself until they improve that offensive line. Uh, and exactly. that's 
forth. I digress. We're not. This is not a Cardinals podcast. But again, so I think that that's just something the Giants are going to have to live with. He's what I like though is he keeps his eyes downfield and he's oh, and he's looking to take shots. This is remember Eli Manning threw interceptions early in his career in that Kevin Gilbride run and shoot, but he also made big plays. It's about making big plays. It's about making plays out of structure. It's about giving your chance a team to win. And again, we saw it in something that you know really stood out to me while we're on Jones, Nick, and I thought this was interesting to me, is that he's now had two situations where he's had two-minute drives. This was, The first against the Bucks was the game-winning drive, with, with, with I guess it was like a three-minute drive. But on this one, just before halftime, two-minute drive, drove him all the way down. If it wasn't for Gallman uh, making the decision with 50 seconds left to try to cut back in for the first instead of going out of bounds, I think he would have had time to maybe turn this into a touchdown drive. Obviously, he had to run that, that fade to Cody Latimer, which resulted in an offensive pass interference, like four seconds on the game clock in two minutes. I don't think they run that fade. Otherwise, it's a bad play, a fade. It's really just being used there so they can so the ball's either caught or out of bounds and the clock doesn't run. But the Giants have much better play calls in the red zone with Jones. We've seen it. We haven't seen that. Uh, the, the fade is, is known as one of the worst calls in the play in the the, in, in the red zone, it's been at this point, like people have talked, there's been studies about it and there's a lot of stats. I'd have to look it up. And so for those who want to call me out on it, call me out on Twitter and, I, and I'll find you that I'll find you what I'm talking about. But fade's not the play they're going to go with. The point of the point I'm trying to make is he got them down there and it just really he's shown a really good job, in my opinion, of managing those situations, those those two minute type situations. So, again, there's going to be bumps and bruises with Jones, but I think overall, those interceptions, I'm not too alarmed. Do you, is that kind of where you stand, Nick? Yeah, I mean, you bring up an interesting point about his arm velocity. And I do want to tip my cap to Dunbar because that was a good play to recognize the route combination that we have sure. used this year. Come off the route, go to the horizontal route, and make that pick. And on the second one, they brought five men, the Redskins did. And on this play, it looked like Evan Ingram was going to be open coming from the weak side drag. And DJ actually looks off Evan Ingram. He looks at him first. And it looked like Holcomb, who was actually in man coverage on Gallman, was by him. So he ended up switching and just staring down Sterling Shepard right after that, who was running the horizontal cross. And if he just waited a millisecond, Ingram would have broke out open and we would have had a much more fruitful game than an interception. But on this play, one thing about Sterling Shepard, the ball was thrown behind. It was on Daniel Jones for staring down his receiver. But one thing I saw from Sterling Shepard that I wish I – kind of uh, that I wish he did a better job of was creating separation in and out of his break. He didn't really utilize a strong lean and flipper, which is a thing that you do when you're kind of leaning into a break of a route. If you're a route runner, if you're a wide receiver, you lean into the defender right before you break, and then you can, at the break, flip with your arm that is closest to the defender. You stick your foot in the ground, and you break, and then you use your arm as a flipper to kind of create separation. And it's not necessarily a push-off, and that's what they look for in the NFL. They look for the push-off. That's going to get the flag every time. But if you just use your arm and you kind of fold it like a chicken wing and you just do that and you create the separation with the break, don't extend your arm. That is a way to create the separation. That wasn't done by Sterling Shepard, but still DJ kind of put the ball behind him, resulted in a Giants interception on that play. But it's one of those things where it's something that, like, as coaches – we taught our players time and time again, and it just wasn't really done on that specific play. It's something that could have assisted in separating and could have assisted his young quarterback. Yeah, that's a great point, Nick. And you you rewatched that play, and you know I made note of this. There's no separation at any point in that route. So obviously he didn't do a great job there, Shepard. Uh, is there anything else specifically you want to talk about from Jones, a player, anything like that before we dive into a different aspect of this game? 
My favorite play by Daniel Jones is something I wanted to talk about other than the five progression because that play was incredible. But this was a third and two in the first half, 12 personnel with a running back and two tight ends to the boundary. On the field side of the formation, they ran a corner from the number two and an under from the number one. And to the boundary side, the inline tight end, which was Rhett Ellison, ran a snag route and Ingram ran a quick pivot route underneath with Gallman doing a wheel route. Now, this is an interesting play because I could see this really bearing fruit if Saquon Barkley was there and especially if it is man coverage in a cover one situation because of that wheel route if the Giants can block it up. But this was just a simple 12-yard completion to Evan Ingram, but the way Daniel Jones handled himself with five men coming in and a free rusher because the way the skins lined up, Greg Minuski had his guys on the line of scrimmage. They had like a one technique and a two technique, almost a three technique on the same side of the line of scrimmage, which was the weak side. And they both attacked the outside shoulders of their blockers, the center and the guard respectively, which opened up the A-gap. And the A-gap, I swear, it was gigantic. And this allowed for the fifth man, which was Cole Holcomb, to blitz right in untouched at the young quarterback. And most quarterbacks and young quarterbacks in this situation would cave under this kind of duress. But DJ kept his eyes downfield and just slightly backpedaled, waited for Evan Ingram to come open on that pivot route. And he just dropped it right to Ingram as he was backpedaling with an unblocked defender blitzing right in his face. If patience is a virtue, Jones showed some Mother Teresa qualities on that play. Yep, that was a hell of a play, and you bring me to one of my favorite plays from this game by Jones, another unheralded play, um, and obviously I'm not even going to talk about the Ingram 31-yard gain, which you know everybody credits Ingram for, for shaking his defender, but if you look at it, the subtlety of the play is Jones pump fakes him open there, and you know it hasn't been touched on much, but one play that really stood out to me, I uh, was on the Giants' second drive of the game in the second quarter, I believe it's the first quarter that led into, bled into the second corner, third and two, shock and 11 personnel, Ingram's on the lone side. Uh, alone there detached from the formation and Jones first two reads are taken away he wants to hit Ingram first uh, again on this you know there's three guys on the on the right side in this 11 personnel and Ingram's detached a little bit on the left side he wants to hit him first that's his first read is taken away he then wants to find Hillman uh to for this underneath it's taken away and he buys time with his feet for rolling to the right and then connecting on a on a pass to, to Darius Slayton on the other side of the field about six seven yard gain First down, drive stays alive. I have seen that play run 50 to 100 times over the last two seasons with Eli, two, three seasons with Eli Manning. And when that first or second read is not there, the ball's coming out to one of those two players. I don't know who it's going to be. It might be a forced anger. It might be forced to Hillman. Ball's coming out. We're punting. And the Giants are punting there. And so it's just interesting to see a quarterback who has that ability to extend drives with his feet and with his arm. So first it starts with his feet by buying time. But it's also with his arm to get back there. And then it's also with his mind, the ability to, to understand that he has that backside read to Slayton on that play. So those are what stood out. Is there anything else, Jones, you want to touch on before we dive into another aspect of this game? Now let's dive into another aspect. Right. DJ, keep it. up what you're doing. Hell yeah. Let's do it. How about the offensive line, Nick? So I want you to talk about the pass protection and the run blocking from your standpoint. And then I'll jump in with what I saw. Yeah, I thought the offensive line played much better. And again, like I talked about, Deron Payne, Jonathan Allen aren't boys just to bat your eyes at. Those guys can play football. Alabama defenders, you know they're coached well from Nick Saban coming up to Washington. But I felt like they were just much more physical. I feel like down the stretch a little bit, they started to wane as the game got out of hand. I saw a couple plays by 
Remmers, who seemed to struggle against Matt Ioannidis. There were some mistakes by Hernandez, some little mistakes of just kind of oversetting and letting the defensive linemen gain leverage, natural leverage on themselves from Hernandez, I saw from Remmers, especially down the stretch. But overall, Zeitler, even Solder, who had a couple plays that were a little rough, but again, it's going to happen, left tackle in the NFL. I was impressed with the offensive line and their ability to win at the line of scrimmage, get Wayne Gallman his first start without Saquon Barkley this year, get him some space at home to rush the football. I was also happy, again, like we brought up with the power concepts, gap concepts, the variety we showed in the rushing attack. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, there were some warts, especially in pass production, Nick. Less so in the run game. I thought they did a really good job in the run game in this in this particular game from run blocking standpoint. Specifically, I liked what I saw from Halpeo uh, in this game and Zeitler in the middle, just clearing. There were a couple really nice holes they cleared it out. They cleared out in the middle, um, and then obviously you like to see some of the double teams and stuff that Hernandez and and Solder can do occasionally on that left side. Uh, and then also I saw some really good blocking. From Evan Ingram on the screen on the third and eleven screen to Gallman. That's all Ingram there. Uh, makes an unbelievable makes a great block downfield. That's something we've seen throughout. We saw it against the Bucks too. Um, you know, there's also, you know, some some good blocking, some good blocks in there from Ellison, I think, but you know, overall nothing nothing too stand nothing that stands out too much there. But I also think Jalapeo and Hernandez stood out to me in pass protection. The interior pass protection has been so so good through these first four weeks, especially when you consider the matchups they've had. Obviously, there have been some issues at, on the tackle spots, and you know, Silder had his has his warts in, in every game at this point. But at least against some of these pass rushes, he's had to face. But overall, I thought we saw a definite improvement there. Did any individual offensive linemen stand? I mean, you talked a little bit, but you talk more to touch on individually. Individually, it was just Solder lost one pretty bad rep to Noah Spence on a double swipe. Yeah. Gave, gave, gave him the edge pretty easily on that one play. And again, Remmers throughout the game, he was getting beat subtly. And then towards the end, I want to say it was the last drive, second to last drive. Remmers and had a lot of struggles with Matt Ioannidis, lost two consecutive reps. Something you don't like to see, especially down the stretch in the fourth quarter. Was he tired? What if this was a competitive game? It's against a player like Matt Ioannidis, who's a very solid player. But what about when he's playing guys like Everson Griffin and Daniil Hunter, who he is going to see next week, his former teammates? Things that are just a little bit concerning for me. But overall, I feel like the offensive line played pretty well in this game. Got the W at home for Daniel Jones and this Giants offense. No doubt. Well, a couple more things on offense. First is Evan Ingram. He was a player who last year took a lot of flack, um, rightfully so in my opinion, from from Turchin. A lot of it was because he was playing hurt, in my opinion, but he wasn't winning early in the downs. Once he got that second or third year going, like we saw obviously against Tampa with that touchdown run, and you know, with the 31 yard of this week, he was still unbelievable last year while even playing, you know, through multiple injuries. First that sprained MCL, which is a tough one to get to come back to full health from, and then a hamstring while compensating last year, which makes made things a lot worse. But I feel like to me, he's really improved his short area route running and his ability to get open earlier in routes this season. I mean, he's also developing a really good chemistry with Jones, and it's really early. You saw it on the sideline and the sights and sounds from the Giants. They're talking about things. They're seeing, talking about what they're seeing, and they're utilizing it uh, in games. Um, for example, on that 31-yarder where Jones made that pump fake. But to you, are you also seeing him winning earlier in routes than he, than he has in the past with the Giants in his first two seasons? What do you attribute to you know Ingram's overall emergence? Are we seeing the potential of a breakout star? Right now he's first, second, or third in tight end receptions, yards per catch, yards, and touchdowns. I would say that a lot of those struggles were attributed to his injury last year. 
I mean, when you have a hamstring injury that lingers, it's something that's going to affect you, especially with somebody who has the athletic ability of Evan Ingram, who's very explosive and relies on those explosive movements. He's getting in and out of his cuts really well, and I feel like he's winning at the line of scrimmage, something that's very important. And again, like that 31-yard gain that you just talked about. That was an excellent double move, little pivot route back inside to sell against a linebacker. This is a mismatch nightmare the New York Giants have in Evan Ingram. I love how he's just getting open. I feel like he's doing a great job utilizing that athletic ability. I feel like he's fully healthy. He hasn't dropped the ball like he has in the past. And all those things put together, especially the fact that he's still a relatively young player, playing with a young quarterback I think this is someone that we can grow with and I'm really encouraged by what I'm seeing from Evan Ingram early on it seems like every game he's coming up with a really big important play for Daniel Jones and his athletic ability and his mismatch ability this is a mismatch league you've heard that time and time again those two things are huge for the Giants offense and I feel like fact that he is growing as a route runner he is growing at winning at the line of scrimmage kind of goes a long way for this offense and especially for Daniel Jones. Definitely something to keep an eye on. I think we're watching a breakout, but how about Gallman? What do you think from Wayne Gallman in his first real chance? And do you, and for you, Nick, in your mind, did you see enough from John Hillman to stick with him for, to stick with these two as their go-to for week five against the Vikings? I'll tell you, Hillman can't be putting the ball on the ground near the goal line on that specific play though. Ball was on the ground. He has to cap that ball. He's going through. He has it capped. When cap, what I mean is you take the opposite hand, the one that you are not holding the football, and you put it over top. And he does that initially. And then once he's going through the line of scrimmage, I have no idea why Hilleman did this. He just removed his arm, and it easily was punched out. It was just a rookie mistake. He needs to cap that. But yes, I do feel like we saw enough. Obviously, the Giants, like this kid, promoted him from the practice squad, decided not to go the route of Jay Ajayi or any of those other running backs. As for Wayne Gallman, I feel like Gallman... Showed a lot as a receiver. I feel like he showed a lot of vision. I feel like he showed patience and the ability to just kind of hit the hole and go lower his shoulder. He's not an overly big running back. And obviously, he's not going to give us what Saquon Barkley can give us. But I do feel like he showed the combination of vision, receiving ability, and a lot of those things that I would say backup running backs don't always have or possess. So I was encouraged. Again, this is against Washington, but I feel like Washington's front is a little bit stronger than especially with Payne and Allen, like I mentioned, a little bit stronger than maybe they're giving credit for. It's just the rest of their roster isn't exactly there. So I was encouraged by what I saw from Gallman, and I want Hilleman, ball security. Obviously, Gallman, ball security as well since that last drive. But I um, think both of those guys will be dressed for the New York Giants, though, next game against Minnesota. Yeah, it's interesting, Nick. I think with Gallman, what I liked most from him, like you said, was the vision and then the balance, the contact balance from him, something that I think is the most important trait for a running back in the NFL. I always believe that. I think that's what makes Saquon Barkley so special. Um, there was even a play, you know, first and 10 on the Giants' sixth drive in the in the third quarter where Gallman made this awesome cutback run where the play was blown up in the line of scrimmage and somehow found a way to find five yards out of it. I guarantee you Saquon Barkley doesn't even buy five yards from this play. No running back, really, in my opinion, that I've no running back can consistently do what he did on that play. And that's a testament to his style. He really is looking for those tough yards on every single time he touches the ball. And his vision is really to maximize yards on every play. You saw it. On the screen pass, the way he finished that run, you saw it on the the, the check down kind of uh, yeah, it was like a almost a crosser that set them up for halftime in the passing game, and you saw it obviously on the screen 
I like Gallman. I'm happy with him, but I'm not happy with him. And me and you are a little different than that. I was disappointed they didn't work out and sign JHI this week. If he is fully healthy and recovered, he just offers a lot more than Hillman can as an individual runner. Uh, since 2000, they were charting since 2006 or 2007. No running back has, 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 has uh, racked up more yards after contact per attempt than JHI, according to Pro Football Focus. This is the type of player he is. He's an independent runner. I'm a big believer in the best way to, do, at least if you're using advanced stats, one of the best ones you can find is force missed tackles uh, plus yards after contact per attempt. It really does show an individual runner's success rate. It's a reason why Saquon Barkley is so awesome. Um, and J.H.I. is really good at that, or had been. So to me, I want them to get him in and replace Hillman. Uh, I, just don't, I just don't see why they shouldn't. It's a big upgrade for this offense. You want him to get as much talent as possible around Daniel Jones. And J.H.I. maybe hasn't done it as much in the pro level, but he was a good receiver out of the backfield at Boise. So he has that skill set, too, and he's solid in pass protection. So with that note, let's flip it to the defense side of the ball, Nick. And I want to start this. Uh, this this side of the ball off with Ryan Connolly because he stood out to me the most of any player in a performance that was really good overall. I mean, the Giants held the Redskins to three points with, I believe, four turnovers uh, produced by the defense. So why would he stood out to me? I thought there was multiple drives where he completely took over. One of them that stood out to me was late in the game, the Redskins' eighth possession in the third corner. Unfortunately, one possession before Connolly had that unfortunate ACL tear while trying to make a tackle on a Haskins run. I just I wish one of those reads was just open for Haskins, or I wish he just took a chance and threw that ball because that play it never happens. Connolly, if it if he doesn't make that scramble, but on that eighth possession, the play he made that just stunned me. And I'm going to put these on Twitter later, guys, so you can see them. But he's playing from such a deep depth. I don't know if you'll remember these, Nick, so maybe try to flip forward and find them in your notes because I want to hear your thoughts on this. The first play, he shoots down from just a deep depth to stop a run for a one-yard gain. And it's just like, I don't understand how he makes it downhill on the line of scrimmage that fast. This is He's from playing from deep. And then later in that drive was an even more impressive play. It was reminiscent of Antonio Pierce in the 2007 NFC uh, championship game against the Green Bay Packers when he stopped that screen from being a touchdown. It was a first and 10 screen pass. Connolly comes from what was basically safety's depth. He reacts so fast. He drives down so so fast, but he still has to shake a blocker, and he does. He puts a move. He puts this like little pivot shake move on this blocker, on this perfectly blocked screen pass where the Giants are totally screwed. And by the way, Nick, over the past two games, the Giants have been burned on screens. Thompson hit a big one. This should have been another big one. That should have been two. And then Ronald Jones hit a huge one. This is a massive problem for them. Maybe it's the linebacker depth you were talking about. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the scheme, the play calls that they're hitting them on. The Giants are going to get burned by a big screen against Dalvin Cook this week if, if something doesn't change. But anyway, he stops this for a five-yard gain. This should have been a 40- or 50-yard gain, maybe a touchdown. Um, and this is independent of the sack he had, the interception he had. Countless run stops in the first half. This is all second half. This was the best game from a Giants linebacker that I've seen in the last decade. Decade. It's the best game since Antonio Pierce, without a doubt for me, since any of his individual performances that really stood out. Um, you know, we talked about on the last pod. What What are your thoughts on Connolly here, Nick? Well, first off, Ryan Connolly is the best linebacker. I know we talked about this. He's the best linebacker on this roster, and it is an absolute damn shame. And I thought the same exact thing. I was like, why couldn't Haskins have just thrown it? Like, that guy, he was kind of open. Why couldn't he have just gotten rid of the ball? But he didn't. 
and Connolly ends up tearing his. And yes, I saw all of those plays as well. Some of those plays, he's just his ability to diagnose so damn quickly and yep. react. And just we talked about it last episode. He had one of the fastest what? Um, Ten yard splits. And it shows because he reads and he just goes and he fills his gap and he takes on blockers and he's incredibly physical and he's a sure tackler and he's so smart. He's opportunistic, obviously. And it's a freaking shame that he ends up getting hurt. And that is a huge blow to this defense. And I'm not 100 percent sure when Ogletree or Tay Davis will be back. But I honestly feel like Connolly is a step above both of those guys. And it's pretty um, substantial, to be honest. Yeah, no doubt. And it's interesting, Nick. I had a chance to speak with Connolly in the locker room after the game. Uh, he was obviously, like, notably down. Um, first, we, you know, I was hoping it was it was something more minor. So was he. He's like, really won't know until the MRI. But you could tell he didn't he didn't feel good about it. But one interesting thing he brought up to me about, you know, when I, when I, broke, when I talked to him about the game was that he feels like the Giants simplified things on defense. Um, and that was kind of one of the reasons why they found success. And why he found so much success uh, so fast is because he said what he's doing, what they're doing, what he's doing with the Giants and James Betcher's defense is actually very similar, he said, to what he did under Jim Leonard, the Wisconsin Badgers defensive coordinator uh, over there. So I do think that when he comes back next year, he'll have now a lot of, a lot of time to recover from this. He's going to be a starter week one. I think he's going to be able to pick up right where he left off. I think he's a true find, a gem of a find. The Giants found him in the fifth round. Dave Gettleman found him mm-hmm. in the fifth round. Um, this is an unbelievable find by them, and I think we'll see it next year. Um, but for now, I want to talk a little bit about David Mayo, or David Mayo. I actually still don't even know how to pronounce his last name. Hopefully it's Mayo, because that's the one I'm going with. But Mayo, little context, former fifth-round pick by Gettleman, another fifth-round linebacker, all the way back in 2015 for the Panthers when Gettleman was their GM. Played on that Super Bowl team. Has been mostly a special teamer throughout his career. You know what, Nick? I thought he flashed a little bit more than I expected in All-22. Did Mayo stand out at all to you? Do you think he's somebody who can now pick up a little bit of that slack that they lose from Connolly, or where, where do you stand there? I mean, he could pick up a little bit, but I don't feel like he's anywhere near what Connolly offers, as we've already talked about. But I did see a couple plays on film that really stuck out to me that I liked. The first and 15 with 514 left in the second. The Skins were running a power toss concept to Chris Thompson, and Mayo tracked him down from the far side, and... Uh, made that tackle and that just shows a lot of backside pursuit a lot of again diagnosing ability something that Gettleman obviously puts a high precedent on there was also that bunch screen it looked like the wide receiver Sims who was tasked to block thought the screen was going to him and then (laughs) I don't know if you remember this play but it was a bunch screen and Mayo or Mayo runs from the opposite well not no he was the near side linebacker and he runs makes that tackle but nobody blocked him and nobody blocked Jack Rabbit, but both of the wide receivers in the bunch blocked Grant Haley and knocked him to the deck, the smallest defender there. I feel like the wide receiver for the Redskins, Sims, didn't know his assignment. He thought the screen was going to him because if you watch, he kind of jumps back and he's going to the screen, and then he realizes that the closest wide receiver to the line of scrimmage is getting the screen, and then he goes and just double teams Haley. Easy tackle for Mayo and Jack Rabbit on that play. But another play that really stood out to me, the one that really, really stood out, was the play on the goal line with 226 left in the first half where the skins came out in an eye formation and it was a little pin pull concept to the play side with a fullback leading the way. And Mayo uses quick diagnosing ability, beats that fullback to the gap, scrapes over top of the lineman 
and the fullback was not even expecting him to be there. And he basically just sheds the fullback's weak attempt at a block because he didn't even think that he would be there. And he just drives AP to the deck along with BJ Hill. Shows very good ability to see the game, key and diagnose in these high leverage situations while showing some positive athletic ability traits. Also had a similar play with a minute and seven left in the third where he takes on a pulling offensive lineman in space and causes the tackle. The pulling lineman just hits him. He kind of goes low on the pulling lineman, disrupts the play. The running back had nowhere to go, and then everybody else also kind of caved in on the play. Excellent play from Mayo there. I want to say that's the same play, but it was before Connolly got hurt. It was in the third quarter where Connolly kind of shot that opposite A gap and just missed making a huge play in the backfield. But on this specific play, Mayo gets his into his assignment, which is the B gap, eats the block, forces the tackle. Now, I don't believe Mayo is the tackler that Connolly is, and I feel Mayo needs to kind of break down and square up when he tackles. He does a lot of lunging, which is a little bit concerning for me because it leaves him very susceptible to more agile playmakers. He showed that on the play where Haskins, who is not fleet of foot and is not really an agile playmaker, rolled out. He kind of gets in space. He dives, tries to do an arm tackle, and Haskins kind of falls forward, picks up an extra yard or two because he doesn't wrap up, drive him to the deck. I want to see Mayo take better angles in space in those kind of situations. Don't leave his feet. Don't dive, but rather drive, wrap up, be physical, and slam the guy to the deck. But other than that, I did see some encouraging signs for the linebacker. Yeah. Let's shift a little bit to the edge, guys, Nick. Pretty quiet day, I thought, from Lorenzo Carter, but Marcus Golden, man, does that guy have a relentless motor? And we'll get to Eximinens, but first I want to hear uh, from your money, uh, I mean, from your perspective, a little bit of a breakdown of the edge guys, especially Golden, what you saw there. Yeah, now Marcus Golden had that one sack. It was kind of a coverage sack, but that shouldn't take away from what Marcus Golden did because Haskins held onto the ball and he had people open. He had a deep curl to the boundary that was open. He had a vertical slot that was actually breaking to the opposite side of the field with Inside leverage on the cover one, the deep safety high, and that one would have been open if he threw with anticipation, and he also had a number one route underneath open. Dwayne did not see it, and on this play, Dwayne holds on to the ball. Golden beat Penn with a quick shuffle snatch. I want to say Golden was chipped by the tight end, and he runs up the arc, meets Penn. And he's not even really at the half man, but he was able to establish that by shuffle snatch move. So basically he just engages Penn, gets his inside hand placement, shifts his weight to the outside and snatch and pulls Penn's outside shoulder down and then brings his opposite arm over top to get the sack. And that's just something that um is a common move in the NFL, but something that the Giants, everyone talked about how they did not have these pass rushers. You'd love to see Marcus Golden show these kind of moves. He followed through strong with his inside arm to whack Penn in the back to kind of get his momentum going that way, able to kind of get Penn not to hold him as well, if you know what I'm saying, in those kind of situations. But he's playing with his hair on fire. He's showing backside pursuit and running game. He's able to – they put him out wide on the wide nine. He softens the angle. He dips his shoulder. He rips. And I really like what I'm seeing from Golden, something I didn't necessarily expect from a player coming off of an injury who isn't necessarily a spring chicken. Yeah. I mean, Golden, we talk about a lot in the offseason. He's a guy who doesn't necessarily have those elite tools for pass pressure, but that relentless motor, it's just for this system, I think it really fits. Um, you look at the breakdown of snaps. Carter played 30. Golden played 29. Eximinence played 28. And then Tuzar Skipper, who actually had a really nice kind of finish in this game, 
uh, with a couple of nice pass rushes, played 15 snaps. I'll see, we'll probably see that increase. Um, let's talk about Zimenez, who played uh, almost as much as Golden and Carter. Uh, I mean, listen, he is emerging fast. He had constant pressures in this game. He obviously had one and a half sacks his first four games, I believe. Uh, that's more than... I, I, there was some stat on it from ESPN. I'm not blanking on it about how good that was for a, a rookie in his first four starts. He also had a batted pass at the line of scrimmage, which people don't tell, haven't talked about enough. Um, can you just give a little in, breakdown, I guess, his performance in this game, but also overall and some insight into how he's transitioning to such a key role for the Giants so fast as a third-round pick? Yeah, no, Zimenez is showing a lot of mental processing and ability to kind of utilize timing. And he did on that play where he knocked the pass to the ground. He jumps up, he engages the lineman, and then he just waits and he's eyeing down the quarterback. I want to say it was Haskins or it might have been Keenum at that time. And once the play jumps up, knocks it down, he realizes, okay, I'm not going to win this rep. And I can knock this pass down. The quarterback has his eyes towards me. Let me just be patient, jump up, knock that knocked pass down. That is something that not a lot of young players will do. They'll try to do too much and try to really beat the tackle or something along those lines and then end up probably just getting pancakes. Zimenez isn't exactly doing that. And he's being entrusted to utilize and do all of these stunts. And the timing that he's utilizing on these is excellent. He's attacking at the perfect time to knock the guard off of whoever he's blocking, bring his arm over top and split the tackle and guard and just totally free up the looper, which he did with Dexter Lawrence on the one play. I believe I put that on Twitter. I like how they're putting a lot on his plate in the past and they're not asking him to do too much and playing him on all three downs against the run because he's not quite there yet. He doesn't have the sand in his ass yet to do those kind of things consistently. So I love the fact that they're utilizing him too. Be a pass rusher, and he's showing, hey, I can be a pass rusher. I played at Old Dominion, but that doesn't mean shit. I could still rush the passer, and he's doing that at the big stage. Love to see that from O'Shane. And another thing, man, about Tuzar, Skipper, on that one sack, he was lined up at six technique. They had Tomlinson at three. They had Hill at a three technique, and Zimenez was wide to the boundary. And Tomlinson on this play commands that double team, and that gives Skipper just a one-on-one matchup with Penn. And Skipper you utilize a quick first step to gain the edge on Donald Penn. But Penn on this play knocks Skipper's inside arm down, right? And I feel like Penn could have easily won this rep, but Skipper somehow utilizes an excellent contact balance to just ride his shoulder up the arc. And then he turns his shoulder over and is able to regain the chest because for whatever reason, Penn didn't like slam all of his weight on top of Skipper, which is something I felt like he could have done. But Skipper softens that edge and is able to keep that shoulder on Penn's chest, turn the corner, swivel his hips, and then Skipper regains his balance and gains Penn's chest to shove him away and get that sack with Tomlinson, who also got free because the guard tried to go and help Penn out with Skipper. So that's just something that you love to see from somebody who a lot of Giants fans have no idea who the hell he is. Yeah, I mean, I'm really happy you touched on Tuzar Skipper because he's a player who really interests me moving forward because – just like that, it could be a similar situation to last year where Dave Gettleman found Jamon Brown on the waiver wire when the Rams cut him kind of as a roster move, and then he made a big impact at right guard for the Giants in the second half of the 2018 season. I know someone who covered the Steelers the past four years, Brian Diardo. He works with me at CBS Sports. Now he's in CBS Sports. He's now a national writer, but he still has ties to the Steelers. And he told me that when the Giants claimed Skipper, there were a lot of people in that organization who were not happy. They tried to sneak... Skipper through the practice squad on a Saturday where they had to uh, 
they had to bring up a quarterback because of their situation there with Roth and everything. And they tried to sneak him through and then re-sign him the Monday after. Giants didn't let that happen. Great job by Dave Gettleman, a guy who gets destroyed over and over and over again, yet continues to make moves that were so much better than what the Giants had in the past with a GM like Jerry Reese. Um, and again, you know, as I said on the last podcast, I'm not fully defending Gettleman. He has his warts, but he also makes moves like this. And they were not happy. There were people in that organization who were not happy that the Giants were able to get Skipper. And, you know, now we're looking at Skipper play, and he looks like he has some chops. He looks like, you know, he's a player who we should keep an eye on. So number 54, keep an eye on him moving forward there. Is there anything you want to touch on more on the edge, guys? Or can we talk a little bit about Dexter Lawrence, B.J. Hill, and Dalvin Thompson? Because I thought collectively it was probably the best game from them as a collective three. Yeah, I say we roll into the big boys. Dalvin Tomlinson on this in this game, man, he showed so much ability to just regain himself after being blocked. And we saw that. I believe I put it on Twitter. If you guys want to go check it out at Nick Filato, give it a follow. But yes, Dalvin Tomlinson, the one play I don't remember exactly where it was. I'm looking through my notes, but he gets chipped by the guard and he's just him against number 66 Bergstrom, the center. And he kind of comes through with this second effort and bullies 66 way back into the pocket getting incredible interior pressure something that's reminiscent of what we see from dexter lawrence time and time again i love what i see from all three of these big guys they are executing against the run they're physical they're sturdy they command double teams and they're getting interior pressure something that is helping our pass rushers on the edge as well and guys like Connolly to get sacks because guys like hill guys like lawrence guys like dalvin tomlinson are able to establish inside hand placement, utilize their strong lower body and their leg drive to drive linemen back, and then establish a half-man relationship by either using arm overs, rips, or anything like that. And I don't know if you saw the one play, but Dexter Lawrence is flexible, man. I believe we touched on it last week, but he can really get low. And we're talking about somebody who's 346 pounds. This guy can really get low and bend his hips and knees like I haven't really seen from someone of that size. He's incredibly athletic. And this kid, man, a lot of people just didn't really love that pick. And it's really proving to be an excellent pick by Dave Gettleman. Like you said, Gettleman has his warts, but he drafted Hill. He drafted Lawrence. And those guys can really play football. And they are wreaking havoc on this defensive line. Again, this is against a beat-up offensive line. Brendan Sheriff wasn't playing. Let's put things into perspective a little bit. But I still love what I'm seeing from these guys able to utilize their strength, their mental processing. They're all smart football players, and they're all great athletes at the incredible size that they possess. Yeah, Nick, and for the first time, Dexter Lawrence actually played more snaps than the trio. He played 32 snaps. B.J. Hill played 24, and Dalvin Thompson 22 of 49 total defensive snaps. The Giants weren't even on the Giants defense wasn't even on the field for 50 snaps. That's how dominant performance they had in this game. Um, and that's how it looks. I mean, the Giants play a really interesting system where it's really just two of those three on the field for most snaps. They're in nickel or sub package, like almost every snap, which I think has burned them a lot in the run game, and I think it's going to hurt them at times. And we'll see as it moves forward, but. It's part of their, it's, you know, not, I don't want to say part of their charm, but it's the scheme. It's the system. It's what it's all about. Um, but as far as those guys go, I mean, Dexter Lawrence, you watch him play. He's just pushing, pushing the line, uh, the offensive lineman back into the quarterback so damn often. Obviously, you talked about when he made that uh, big play on the, on the stunt, too. And he's really been awesome. I mean, there was a lot of people who lazily said he's a two-down run stuffer who didn't watch the tape or didn't, you know, look into his pressures per snap and just kind of looked at the sack total and made their judgment. 
they're all they they all made a mistake because obviously that's not the case. That's pretty clear right now. Um, and as far as and just to touch on that for a second, because I did tweet about this. I mean, they laughed at that Odell Beckham trade as the worst trade ever, but getting Zeitler back in addition, the best offensive lineman this team's had in a decade, in addition to Lawrence and Zimenez already making massive impact, and Jabril Peppers, who we'll talk about later, for Beckham and 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 Vernon and Olivier Vernon has been awful this year. He has his lowest pressure for snap rate of his entire career. He's had high ankle sprains and back-to-back season for this one. They literally traded the most expensive D. He's still like a top five most paid DN, Vernon. And had been injured for two straight years, totally done, just dumped that contract and got Zeitler back. And that was all part of a bigger deal. But people don't know is that was part of the original framework of the deal. And then the Beckham part fell through, and that's why it happened three days later. And then when it happened three days later, the Giants agreed to swap back the picks. They originally was a pick swap in that Vernon for Zeitler trade, where the Browns got a little bit better pick in that swap. And then they just said, you know what, wash it out. We agreed to the original framework, which didn't involve a pick swap, but it did involve Beckham. And so they did that deal. But right now, guys, I just got to say, this deal, it went from the worst deal ever, according to Twitter and according to all the analysts that supposedly know how bad the Giants and Dave Gettleman are, to a deal that, you know, I'm not going to say they want it, but I'm going to say it's starting to look pretty decent. Um, let's just let's just leave it at that for now. But let's transition a little. And I do want to, before we transition, actually, Nick, just say this. B.J. Hill is the best run defending defensive lineman on this team. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that right now. I mean, I feel like it's unsung, and I want to say someone asked us on Twitter, it's like, hey, did you guys talk about B.J. Hill? I was like, man, are we derelicting our duty and not talking about B.J. Hill? Because B.J. Hill, you never see him get moved. You, you Try and scoop block this guy. Try and reach block this guy. He's going to beat you because he has quick feet for a big guy, and he's incredibly strong. He has an incredible anchor. I love watching him play. What, B.J. Hill played how many snaps? 24 snaps in this game. It was a blowout. I believe he would play much more if it was a more competitive game, but I love the rotation they have, and I love the fact that he just is immovable. All right, let's talk about the breakout performer this week, Jabril Peppers. In addition to a game-sealing read to jump the Haskins throw for a pick six, he stopped the touchdown and a huge momentum swing, which it would have been in the second quarter, breaking up that other touchdown pass to, to Sprinkle. It's not just that for him. I mean, he looked good against the run. He was all over the field. He earned a 91.3 grade from Pro Football Focus. He's done that now three times in his career already, 90-plus uh, grade. What did you see from so, from Peppers in this game? And can you explain what you mean when you talked to me before the podcast and talked about him being an excellent alley defender? Yeah, he's an excellent alley defender. So essentially, when plays are schemed up because he does play safety— you want to block all the guys in the trenches. You want to get to the second level and block those linebackers. Then it's the job of the running back to make that alley defender miss. And in the case of Jabril Peppers, he comes down so fast and so physical, and he hits you so low and just wraps up that it's hard to make Jabril Peppers miss. And I'm not surprised that he has such positive marks against the run, according to PFF, because he shows that on the film. It's very, very evident. You'll see an alley, just like an alley that you guys would all think about, open up. And that's where the running back would run through. And granted, with these big guys in the front, alleys aren't always too wide because Dexter Lawrence, B.J. Hill, and Dalvin Tomlinson are beasts. But you'll see a narrow alley open up, and then you just see the alley defender, which is Jabril Peppers, fly in there unblocked, and the running back cannot make him miss. He sticks the guy, and they're using him in so many different ways. He's in the box. He'll be deep, and he's very, very versatile in that facet. Another thing about Peppers, if you remember coming out of the draft, one of his bigger knocks was the fact that he didn't have a lot of career interceptions at Michigan because he was being used in the box by Harbor and all those things. But 
He had one career interception, and everyone was saying his ball skills lack. And then we saw this game. He made that play against Sprinkle in the end zone. He had the interception on the horizontal cross from Sprinkle as well. Seems like he has some ball skills. Seems like he can catch the ball. Obviously, he's dangerous in space, and he's an incredibly physical defender. I kind of love what I'm seeing from him. And again, like you alluded to before, it looks like the Giants are getting a better return from this trade than we originally thought back in March. Well, a lot of Giants fans originally thought back in March. Yeah, no doubt about it. I want to talk a little about Grant Haley. Obviously, it was burned for what should have been two touchdowns, um, and that's a problem. People want to take him out of the lineup, but he has been awesome against the run, Nick. I don't know if you've seen this, but, I mean, he obviously has a great grade on it from Pro Football. Just from my evaluation of All-22, he is the most physical five foot nine player I've ever seen in the NFL. <laughs> like, I just don't understand it. He just throws his body, and he made multiple plays, too, in the run game to save big plays. I don't know what to make of the Haley situation because he's so good in this role against the run. And this role is, since the Giants are using sub-package so often and nickel so often, these guys become the, the nickel defender like Haley's role becomes such a key factor for the run game. Um, so what do you make of this? Can they what do you think they should do with Haley? He's obviously not good enough to keep up with slot vertical vertical slot routes and teams are taking advantage of that. But is this run defense enough to keep him in the lineup? What do you think there? I think they're giving him a chance for it because he's incredibly physical in the run, like you just said. But offensive coordinators are taking note the fact that he's a liability in that vertical route because the first play of the game will happen Trey Quinn deep then after a sudden change a Giants turnover it was a sudden change we need a big play the Redskins are thinking let's attack Haley again deep with Trey Quinn luckily Keenum couldn't hit the pass but those are just plays that everyone's noticing that he's a liability in this pass the fact that he is physical against the run is a testament to him because he is small but if those are caught if those are accurate throws I don't know if Haley's going to be out there especially when we run a lot of cover one average against some of these better teams. I don't know if he would be out there. So he's going to need to clean that up, maybe play off a little bit more. Hopefully he can continue being this physical. Hopefully his ability to stay in phase and not give up the deep ball will kind of come as he gets more reps. But the fact that he's a liability, it's going to come and burn us, and it almost did twice in this game. Yeah, no doubt. And before we move on, I want to ask a little bit about something Jenkins told me in the locker room after the game. George said, you know, Pat Shermer talked about, and they made some tweaks, and, um, and obviously Connolly mentioned he thought it was they simplified the defense a little bit and tried to, in what he, in his words, Connolly, he said basically they started to, their, their game plan was stop what Washington does instead of, you know, do all these things. But Jenkins told me that it was as simple, at least for him on the back end, as him and Baker flipping sides uh, on the outside cornerback. Was this the difference, or what do you think was, you know, what did you see from Jenkins and Baker in this one? Baker was one of the players where I legit watched the whole game twice and I was like Did Baker play and I had to go and look I'm like yeah no he played because he was you just didn't see a he lot only of Baker one time yeah it was only targeted one time which is huge and I do believe what Jenkins said obviously he has more insight than I do on this situation but another thing is the fact that you are playing Washington Case Keenum missed some huge throws and they brought in a rookie quarterback with more than a half to go so just for some perspective, no offense to Haskins, kid's not ready to play football. It was more than evident. He's just not ready to play football and be out there. And I think that was another testament to a reason why it was so successful for this defense. Yeah, no doubt. All right, Nick, on that note, let's dive into the listeners' questions from today. Um, we start with Justin Panic, and I wanted to open it up this week and kind of make it a little more fun so it could be questions about anything. We'll open it up with Justin who wants to know what your favorite game day meal is that's most likely to put you in a food coma. So 
I would probably eat some kind of scrambled eggs with some cheese on it, something along those lines, but that would probably give me massive shits, and I don't know if I want that, so I might have to do that a couple hours before the game, but usually what I would do is just eat a lot of fruit as well, get those simple carbohydrates in my body, something that I can burn off and continue eating that through halftime, all that kind of stuff, granola, but yeah, I like eggs, but you know you don't want to be shitting your pants uh, on fourth down or something like that. Yeah, Nick, I don't think you. I don't, I don't think we're we're on the opposite of the spectrum. This none of that would put me in a food coma. Fruit, eggs. For me, I'm going with Sal, Chris, and Charlie's Deli. So when I used to live in Astoria before game days, I would often go to this place, Sal, Chris, and Charlie's. It's in Astoria by Ditmar's or whoever's from the area. This place has a sandwich called the Bomb. This thing is literally the biggest freaking sandwich I've ever seen in my life. They're, the goal of the bomb is simple. They put every single deli meat on it and every single cheese. Then <laughs> your choice of mustard and mayo. I usually go mustard and oil and vinegar. Lettuce, tomato, onions. This sandwich is so big, it's a four-meal process. I mean, you could do it in two. I've knocked it out on two meals. But in reality, it's a four-meal process. All under 10 bucks. Values there. This thing is awesome. I eat that before game days. Then I'm in a food coma after the game. So that's just a heart attack waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah, they asked what's the most likely to put me in a food coma, and that's the answer. Um, Jason asked which free agents are worth signing. I don't want to dive too much into this one. They're going to cut it off here. I mean, obviously Shaq Barrett's on my radar. That's obvious. And linebacker position, I'm going to target offensive tackle. Obviously, Lel Collins is now off the market. Maybe Daryl Williams. They kick him back to right tackle one year removed from the ACL. He's struggling a bit at left tackle right now in Carolina. There'll be guys. We'll talk about them later, Jason. But right now, we're not there yet. But let's dive into this one because we can answer this now. Giovanni Abar asks, the offensive line, while solid, has been giving up pressure a little more than I think they should, which has resulted in Jones taking a lot of hits or having to escape. Is this a chemistry issue between Jalapio, Zeitler, and Remmers being all new together, or is it something else and worse? Like we talked about last week, we saw miscommunication between Solder and Hernandez, and we saw a lot of that last year just among the entire offensive line. I do believe there are still some miscommunications, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's a chemistry issue. I think Remmers and to a smaller extent Jalapio could be replaceable players, whereas Zeitler, Hernandez, and Solder, Solder's probably going to be there for longer than some giant fan because he gets a bad rap maybe some giant fans won't want him there but like dan alluded to already left tackles just don't grow on trees so i don't necessarily think it's just a pure chemistry issue i think they just need to become a little bit more cohesive and i believe some of them are just replacement players that we can't replace quite yet maybe we'll go after it in free agency maybe we'll go after it in the draft but this is the nfl you're going to give up pressure you're going to give up pressure to those defensive linemen who are trying to do that it's kind of a give and take when it comes to that and it could be a lot worse but I don't necessarily feel like the offensive line is one of our biggest issues this year, like it's been in the past. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think it's as much of an issue. Um, let's move on to a fun one. Brian Diardo, my boy, asks, pancakes or waffles? And then Pat Chamberlain tags in with throw French toast into these rankings as well. So I'll let you start, Nick. Okay, so I'm not a huge carbs guy, but I'm going to go with some French toast. Then I'm going with waffles, and then I'm going with pancakes. Okay, French toast waffle pancakes. Here's how I'll answer this question. I think somebody once actually broke this down to me, and they were spot on. If you want consistency, your option is waffles. The average waffle is better than the average pancake, but the best pancake is better than the best waffle. And I got to throw this back to Astoria, Ditmar's Boulevard, where I used to live, my favorite my favorite place I've ever lived. And there was a place called um, fuck, I'm forgetting this name now. I can't believe I'm forgetting this. Uh, <sighs> All right, well, Family Corner. Family Corner is the name of this restaurant. Family 
corner. Best pancake I've ever had. So head there if you want a good pancake. French toast for me, I'm going to throw that three in the rankings. If you get a good hollow French toast, the thick hollow bread, then it's legit. But overall, French toast, I can do without it. Um, Easy E asks, the Vikings move away from the run-heavy game plan to tack the Giants through the air? Yes, I believe they do. I mean, I think it's squeaky wheels going to get the grease. Adam Thielen spoke out against his team, and the Giants have kind of shown that they are susceptible against the pass. And I do believe Dalvin Cook is one of the best running backs, and they're one of the best rushing teams are going to run the football. I think they're going to hit us with slip screens. I think they're going to hit us with some deep routes, and I believe they're going to try to take advantage of this young secondary. Yeah, I don't think the game plan is going to change that much, Nick. I just think they're going to hit bigger play. I think they're going to hit screens to Cook. I told you the screens have been a massive problem. No one's talking about for this Giants defense. Major problem. They're going to hit a big one there. I think they're going to hit a couple big plays, secondary breakdowns. I think it's still going to be what you've seen from them schematically um, and within that system there with Stefanski. But I just think that they're going to find more success with it maybe than they have in recent weeks. The Giants are going to have to put up points to win this game for sure. Their defense just simply doesn't have the personnel to shut down teams like they did the Redskins. All right, last question. I'm sorry if we missed the rest of your questions. We feel like, based on reading them, we hit them during the pod, so we didn't have to hit them again. But Cosmo Valenti asked, why are we still keeping Tanny on the roster? If he was originally kept to assist DJ with his experience while playing Eli, uh, while Eli was playing, do we really need him now? I think I can answer this quickly, honestly, Cosmo. I don't think there's too much depth to this one. I think, honestly, it comes down to the Giants feel like he might be the the backup of the future for Jones. I know it sounds crazy because he's, I believe, 32 years old now, 31, 32, but he still hasn't played much. He doesn't have much wear and tear. So if they feel like he can be that backup of the future, at least short term for Jones, I think that's why they're keeping on the roster. All right, guys, that's all the time we have for on today's show. This is week two, the second episode, or sorry, week four, but the second episode of the new podcast with myself, Dan Schneier, and Nick Filato. We really appreciate you guys tuning in here. We love to hear feedback. Um, if you can do us one favor, and we would only ask one favor ever on this show, It's please rate, review, and download the podcast on iTunes. In addition to that, share it with your friends. If they can just rate it, review it, and just hit that download button, it makes such a difference for us um, in helping to grow this show and try to make it bigger in the future for you guys and expand it. Um, You can find myself on Twitter at Dan Schneier NFL. You can find Nick on Twitter. You want to tell us where you can find your work, Nick? Yeah, you can find me at Nick Falato, and that's F-A-L-A-T-O, not fellatio, and I appreciate the individual who said that I don't blow on the podcast because fellatio is a blowjob reference. Nice, nice. All right, guys, on that note, one that on that, go Giants, as I like to end this thing, and thanks again for tuning in. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.